This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Good morning. Um, today we're in the book of Matthew in chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. Would you, would you uh, pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we sit happy and humbly under your word this morning. Would you make our hearts happy that you gave us your word this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you, um, that you are quick to show mercy and loving kindness and that you are slow to anger. We look to you we look to your word for how to order our lives, for how to understand ourselves and our relationships, and we do that again this morning. So, Father, would you send out your word and convict the proud, comfort the weary? Would you uh, wake up dead hearts this morning? And would you warm, cold, icy hearts this morning? Fill us with faith this morning through your word. Fill us with hope. Give us the grace and the faith and the humility to obey you, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, I, I, want, to, I want to open this morning with a kind of broad quote that encapsulates our subject. So I'm, I'm just going to start there right off, right off the jump. One scholar writes, I have attempted to survey the passages of Scripture addressing divorce, and I fear too often that Christians in general and evangelicals in particular focus on the differences between various texts while overlooking a unified biblical witness that as a general rule, divorce is not good. For example, instead of focusing on differences between passages, I believe we should all begin by affirming the unified biblical witness is that God's ideal is for one man and one woman to remain married until death do they part. At times, I think, we repeat the mistake of the religious leaders in Jesus' day and spend more time talking about the acceptable or unacceptable conditions for divorce and remarriage as opposed to the high calling of faithfulness to a marriage covenant. 
As I noted earlier, we must remember that the attitudes toward divorce and remarriage in the first century is rather relaxed in Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture. And into this environment, both Jesus and Paul raised the standard of of expectations. The somewhat cavalier attitude towards divorce in the first century is not so very far removed from our modern attitudes. So that, that quote sums up an orientation for us this morning that I want us all to adopt. Because Jesus is attacking an attitude and a hot posture, heart posture regarding marriage, and he's giving instructions on the conditions by which divorce is permissible. And so I want to do the same thing that Jesus was doing. I want to attack the broad and pervasive devaluing and diminished view of marriage in our culture and indeed inside evangelical Christian culture as well as the surrounding secular culture around us. I want to attack a low view of marriage and I want us to have a right view of marriage. And a right view of marriage won't worship marriage as an idol, but it will deeply honor and respect and value marriage. So the kind of strategic tactic I want to take with this text this morning is I want to take whatever we think about marriage and I want to elevate it. I want it to be higher so we don't see it as something mean or common that's easily uh, dissolved or easily separated from. I want us all to love it more and to honor God more by cherishing it and valuing it more. My outline, I'll make four general movements and I'll shape these movements into four questions. The first one is, what's the big deal? The second one is, what's Jesus saying? The third is, what's that mean for my life? And the fourth one is, what do we do now? First, what's the big deal? One thing that can't be denied when you read this text is that Jesus is elevating the crowd's view of marriage. He's not elevating it past where it should be. He doesn't instruct us to be emotionally beholden to the hope of being married. He doesn't instruct us to worship marriage. Some of us fall into that pit, the pit of hanging all of our hopes and dreams on marriage, the pit of hanging all of our dreams and all of our aspirations on our wives or on our husbands. It's an easy error to commit, not the least of which because of how we are inundated with story after story after story after movie after movie after movie after show and show and show that tells you to believe that some other human can fix you, can complete you, can make you whole and happy and right, or even compensate for your mistakes or cover up your sins and your weaknesses. The human heart's sneaky. It's inconspicuous. It doesn't make things easy on you. Your longings and yearnings bleed into idolatry without you even knowing it. And we put our marriages or we put our spouse on a pedestal and we often don't realize it. It's a good thing to desire a loving marriage. It's not good to love and devote yourself to your spouse over Christ. It's a good thing to want to be married if you're single. It's not good to believe in your secret heart that if you were only married, everything would finally be okay. 
Marriage, like so many other things that the Lord gives to mankind, is easily worshipped, which we must guard ourselves from, and we also have to face the facts that divorce is a tragic reality. And why is it so tragic? What is Jesus trying to tell us? What's the big deal? Let me read from Matthew 19, verses 3 through 10. It's a parallel passage, a similar passage to the one we have today. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. This text adds a little more than our passage today, and it reinforces everything that we read this morning as well. Jesus' teaching on marriage is such a big deal that the Pharisees plan, they plan for it to trap Jesus. They're being shady and shifty, trying to test or catch Jesus in a statement that will get him into trouble. In fact, many scholars even think that the Pharisees have in mind the beheading of John the Baptist, which means they're hoping that Jesus will say something about adultery and marriage that will offend some authority to the point where he's willing to come and cut Jesus's head off the same way they did with John the Baptist. What's important to note is that Jesus is taking something that is all over the place in the ancient world. He's taking something that's everywhere in the culture and he is communicating, hey, you guys are way way off here. The practice of divorce at the time, at this time in the ancient world was all too common, even within the Jewish culture. And at that time, there were two different rabbinical schools of thought, and both of them were more loose and lax than Jesus is in both of these texts. The most relaxed version of the rabbinical school even said things like, it's okay to divorce your wife if she burns your food. But Jesus explains to us why divorce is such a huge deal. And the first reason is because marriage isn't our idea. Marriage was God's idea for mankind. God officiated the first marriage covenant. And all people everywhere who get married are married through the grace of the institution of marriage that God established, even non-Christians. The marriage covenant that Jesus talks about is found in Genesis 2, 24 to 25. God takes one man and one woman and unites them in the bond of holy matrimony. That's one man and that's one woman united in lifelong covenant together. 
It's God's idea. It's God's idea. It's not ours. And in all marriages that meet this specific criteria, marriages that meet this specific definition, God's acting and doing the joining. It says in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, marriage is God's idea and God's enterprise. He's the reason that two can become one. There's a covenantal bond during marriage that God gives solemn witness to. God gives solemn witness to one man and one woman in the bond of marriage, and he doesn't give solemn witness to any other version. We didn't think of it. It's not a human contrivance. God thought it up. Marriage belongs to God. This is why, this is why when we mess with marriage, it messes with everything else in the whole world. It messes with fundamental designs for how God made people to exist in the world. And trying to redefine marriage along with something like no-fault divorce have unbelievably far-reaching consequences in our world. And at this point, I could read off statistics, but I won't. We all get it. We all get it. We all know that broken marriages cascade into more brokenness. There's no secret here. Divorce compounds sin and brokenness. We know that. There are secular outlets that try to put out studies to prove that Christianity is the problem and not divorce, but that is nonsense. Nonsense. When human beings take what God has created and we vandalize it and devalue it and pretend that it's no big deal, the fallout and consequences from that attitude and behavior are innumerable. That's one purpose of the church is to come around those who have suffered because of divorce and be a family and a loving community of purpose and meaning because divorce is so hard on Everybody. Divorce is so hard and has so many hard consequences. Marriage is God's institution, and it doesn't stop there. Somehow, from all eternity, the second thing is that God designed marriage to portray and to display the union of Christ with his bride, the church. Marriage is a big deal and divorce is a big deal because it represents the astonishing union of Christ with sinful people like me and sinful people like you. Christ is the faithful husband and we are the unfaithful bride, but he's active. Right now he's sanctifying his bride and he's cleansing his bride and he's beautifying his bride and preparing us for a wedding feast. I can hardly fathom that kind of constant, faithful grace. The church doesn't look like much at times, but the word of God's clear that we're the bride of Christ and we're paid for, and we're paid for with his own blood. And Jesus will never, ever divorce us. He'll never leave us. He'll never misuse or harm us. He loves his bride, the church. 
And our participation in our own marriages and our own marriage covenants are a picture of Christ and his church. That picture can't be taken for granted or damaged or defaced without severe consequences. Now, there's always hope in the gospel. So even if you find yourself in a place of fear or devastation because of the state of your marriage right now or because you've walked through something as devastating as divorce, the hope we have through the gospel is that Christ came to redeem you, redeem your life. And even marriages on the brink of divorce can be redeemed. And let me say that we have pastors here explicitly, people in our church, men and women also in our church, who long to serve people in those spots in our church. We have men and women who would love to meet with you. If you find yourself in a scary spot, either talking about or even just kind of secretly fantasizing about divorcing your spouse, because marriage is a big deal and divorce is a really, really tragic reality. This moves me to my second question, which is, What exactly is Jesus saying here? And I'm going to highlight three points of specific detail real quick. One is that he's aiming this at the men in the Jewish culture. Another thing is that divorce divorce is never commanded. And the last one is that God hates divorce. The teaching from Jesus has the same structure when we get to this spot as when we dealt with anger and when we dealt with lust. Jesus explains, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, dot, dot, dot. The men that Jesus has in mind are men who are deciding to divorce their wives for trivial and unbiblical reasons. They're men who are bored or irritated or annoyed or just incompatible with their wives and they want out. Or maybe they have a woman that they want to pursue, but being married to their wife is holding them back from being able to do what they really want to do. And these men are telling each other, don't worry about how God instituted marriage. Don't worry about how it's God that joins two people together in lifelong union. Don't worry about any of that. As long as you give her a certificate of divorce, then you're legal. And as long as you're legal, then God will approve of you. But Jesus drops on the scene and says, hey, all you men with legal divorces, you men who have abandoned your wives for reasons besides infidelity, guess what? God doesn't approve of what you're doing at all. There's additional teaching in the scripture on divorce in other places. There's additional teaching on divorce and remarriage in other places in the New Testament. But here Jesus is being provocative. He's being radical. He's aiming his teaching at all the men who discarded their wives, who violated their word and broke their marriage covenant like it meant very little in the first place. And Jesus is also making another very clear distinction. And he's saying divorce wasn't commanded. It was only allowed. Again, from Matthew 19, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. A few things to take note of. Divorce is because of hardness of heart. And from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning is not a throwaway phrase. 
The Genesis account is authoritative in the lives of these people. The nature of marriage, the nature of marriage, the nature of marriage is from the beginning. The nature of divorce is not from the beginning. It came later. Divorce is permitted later because of hardness of heart, but divorce was not commanded. And lastly, God hates divorce. And I get this from Malachi 2, verses 14 through 16. Some scriptures, some uh, translations stated explicitly this way, and others say it more like thus. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring is what he was seeking. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Other translations start that section off explicitly saying God hates divorce. But either way, it's clear that the faithlessness of divorce is unholy and sinful and God condemns it. Divorce is not the design of human beings. It is a concession because of our hard hearts. But Jesus is clear, even, even then Jesus is clear that the concessions are rare. Which leads me to my third question, which is, what does this mean about my life? Regardless of how you might interpret Paul's teaching on divorce from 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul teaches that in certain cases it's permissible to divorce in certain unique cases of desertion, no one can deny that the overwhelming fact that Jesus taught was that concessions for divorce are still very, very narrow and rare. And that still applies today in 2022. I'm naming this because of how divorce is treated in our culture by and large, and because of how we're catechized to kind of think about divorce in our culture. It's not merely that people out there have a different view of divorce. We're also being taught and fed and constantly inundated with a way that we should be looking at divorce that isn't true. I've seen in my short life and ministry, thankfully not in this church yet, but I've seen it in my life and ministry, Christians file for divorce for reasons that aren't even close to biblical. And that means two things. Here, Jesus says that divorce because of infidelity is allowed, but not commanded. In cases of infidelity, we are free to forgive and restore the marriage where it's possible, where we feel led to and convicted about. And I want to state explicitly, explicitly, that no-fault divorce that almost every state in our country implements is not a biblical justification for divorce. The biblical justifications to allow for divorce are infidelity and or certain cases of desertion from a spouse. 
Now, within those categories, people have differing opinions about what qualifies as what. There's other situations where people are in a dangerous situation and they need to remove themselves from harm. But today I'm not going to cover all the details and nuance of each of those categories. But what I want to say is that if you find yourself in a spot where divorce is on the table, and I mean on the table just in your heart or in your mind, please bring it to pastors as soon as possible. Bring it to godly friends that love you as soon as possible. If you're a member of this church, we love marriage and we love you and we want to help. So please don't try to navigate that or figure that kind of stuff out on your own. But in our culture today, anyone can acquire a divorce for no real defensible reason at all. You can call it irreconcilable differences. You can call it something like incompatibility. And I've sat with Christians as they sat and said things like, we just aren't right for each other anymore. Or we fell out of love. Or, man, I think, I think we were just too young. We're just so different. God wouldn't want us to keep fighting and keep, keep at it and stay in this marriage. I can't imagine a God who would want that for us. And I just want to say that your marriage garden, whether it does have a lot of weeds in it, or it has very few. Your marriage is something that God wants you to tend and to trust him when it seems like all hope is lost. Even then, his way is still good and obedience to his word is still good. And it will be difficult. All marriages go through hard times, but Christ always keeps his covenant, love, faithfulness to his bride. And he wants us to do the same in our marriages. In our day of easy, no-fault divorce, divorces wreaked havoc on the household as an institution. Many of us know this directly, and many of us know this, probably all of us know this indirectly. God's not holding out on you, and God's not holding out on us. Divorce is bad for us, and it's bad for the world. He knows what's best for us, not best for our shallow happiness, but what's best for our souls. So today, listen again and choose to walk in obedience to Jesus' words. The answer to what does it say about my life is, if you're married, take care of your marriage. And if you're not married, guard your heart from sin. If you're married, my exhortation is to keep Christ the center of your marriage, which is to say explicitly, confess your sins to your spouse. Ask your husband to forgive you. Ask your wife to forgive you. Live with your spouse in an understanding way. In Philippians 1, we read this really interesting section of scripture where Paul, Paul writes, um, let your love abound with all understanding and discernment. Apply that type of exhortation to your marriage relationship. Keep the cross at the center of your marriage. Live with your spouse in an understanding, humble posture. Keep yourself humble and at the foot of the cross and keep yourself tender and at the foot of the cross. There's nothing you have to prove and no one to impress if the gospel is true. We'll all fail our spouses. 
We'll all fail them. We'll all sin against them, and we will all hurt them. But because the gospel is true, you don't have to let your shame or guilt or pride or arrogance stick a wedge in between you and your spouse and separate you and keep you from honoring your marriage vows. Forgive one another. Pay attention to the little things. Divorce doesn't happen overnight, so bring others into your marriage. Give other people your, in your life full rights to name any sin or even just bad habits that they think they might see in your marriage. When my wife and I were going through premarital counseling, um, we found three different couples in our lives whose marriages really modeled where we wanted to be in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And we met with those couples and we said to them, hey, would you be the kind of people in our lives that you don't have to ask permission? You don't have to ask permission to point something out. You don't have to ask permission before my wife calls your wife and says, hey, I'm struggling. Like there was kind of like a fully open license and a, and, a, and a benefit of the doubt given to these three other couples in our lives explicitly to where my wife didn't have to wonder, am I crossing a boundary here with Mark or something like that? She could just go to them. And that made the first three to five years of our marriage like so many meetings and so many couches where we got to just face really hard issues right away, right up front with the support of other friends that loved us. So love each other enough to say something when you see something. Because the truth is, is that our enemy hates marriage and he hates our marriage. He hates our marriage and he loves divorce. Because what it says about God's original institution. So let's help each other fight for a vibrant and loving and Christ-honoring, honest marriage. And then my last question is, what do we do now? And I want to end this section of my sermon by meditating on John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, 
You have nothing to draw water with. She's missing the point. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this kind of water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to be thirsty and I won't have to come here anymore and draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So I want to round the end of this sermon into a posture for our people towards the brokenness and damage that divorce has wreaked in our culture that we all, all are affected by. If we're here, the chances that we've made it here this morning without experiencing the brokenness of divorce, those chances are very, very small. So how does Jesus treat this woman? And he's kind and he's compassionate and he tells her that he knows that she's thirsty and he has the water that she needs. Jesus knows everything. He knows all the ins and outs of her divorces. He knows if they were justifiable or not. And he knows that whoever she's living with is a man that isn't even her husband. But in this moment, he's gentle and he doesn't condemn her. He directs her to what she needs most. So my exhortation here is that we would be the kind of place that's full of Christ-like forgiveness, Christ-like compassion for those who've walked through this difficult reality. Divorce is a uniquely tragic and terrible thing, and there's not a soul in this room who isn't also in desperately need for the living water that Christ offers. So I want us to model Christ-like compassion, and I want us to model Christ-like obedience to his word at great cost to our comfort and ourselves. And I know obeying the words of Christ in this passage, uh, in this passage specifically, is very countercultural, and at times it will seem like it is too hard to do. But we keep our covenant to our spouses through the supernatural forgiveness and grace that's offered to us at the cross of Christ. Which is why I exhort us to keep the cross at the center of our marriages. And my ultimate goal this morning has been to try to get us to take marriage more seriously, maybe, than when we came in here. And so I want to read one last quotation, and it is long. So join me. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged in 1945 at the age of 39. 
In the last days of World War II, for being a part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, Bonhoeffer died before he had the chance to marry his fiancée, but not before he wrote down a few thoughts on marriage while he celebrated the upcoming wedding of his niece and a friend. This letter, penned by a man whose life was inching ever closer to the gallows, speaks powerfully to the beauty of marriage. Marriage is more than your love for each other, Bonhoeffer wrote. A surprising statement in a world that sees marriage as merely an expression of love. It has a higher dignity and a higher power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. Like all Christians before him, Bonhoeffer believed marriage is not just a private romance, but a public institution ordained by God as the means by which the earth is filled with people who bear his image. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, Bonhoeffer continued. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In other words, no matter how much a couple is blissfully unaware of anyone else on the wedding platform or in the honeymoon suite, they are never truly alone. They are a link in the chain. They are like Booney and Bunu in a quiet Romanian village, united to their parents before them and their children and grandchildren after them. In your love, Bonhoeffer wrote, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and toward mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Marriage is not just a relationship, but also a responsibility. Marriage involves your expression of love, but it also includes your contribution to the world to create a haven where your family is stable, where your children know both their mother and their father, where trust is granted and love displayed. Bonhoeffer's letter gets to the heart of today's myths about marriage. He distinguished between feelings of love and the marriage covenant. And just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes a king, so it is the marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As you first gave the ring to one another and then now have received it a second time from the hand of the pastor, so love comes from you, but marriage comes from above, from God. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage, of love. And then, in a line that has become one of Bonhoeffer's most quoted, he, he, most quoted, he wrote, It is not your love that upholds marriage, but from now on, it is marriage that upholds your love. There, in the prison cell, awaiting his execution, Bonhoeffer described a deeply countercultural vision of love and marriage. Love is not what makes marriage work. Marriage is what makes love work. Marriage provides the space for something deeper 
than mere romance or sexual desire or fleeting feelings to keep a couple together. Marriage is the covenant that enables deeper, richer love to flourish. Even in the difficult times of life, the mystery of marriage isn't its limitless capacity for securing our personal happiness, writes Jen Pollock Michelle. The mystery of marriage is its witness to the eternal, self-sacrificing love of Jesus for his bride, whom he intends to purify and present holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle. The church has the opportunity to reclaim that ancient vision and give it back to our society as a gift, which is why I want to say, what, what do we do now with Jesus' teaching? And I want, to, I want to exhort us to rightly honor, delight in, and value the sacred and beautiful ordinance of marriage, and let us be the kind of family that loves and shows compassion on those for whom the brokenness of divorce has inflicted innumerable pains. And as we move to close our service, we're going to take communion to celebrate that, to proclaim that Christ bought his bride with his life, death, and resurrection. Christ paid the ultimate price to keep his covenant faithfulness to us. So in a second, I'm going to pray. And before I do, let me just give a couple instructions. The first is the way we take communion here at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There's going to be two stations down here right in front of me this morning. I don't believe that we have a balcony station available this morning, but then we will also have a gluten-free single-serve version of communion over here to my left. And then further to my left, underneath the stained glass window, we will also have prayer ministers who would love to pray for anyone in this room for anything, anytime. Um, And they would love to pray for you this morning if you need prayer or you want prayer. So I'm going to take a second and thank Jesus for his blood and for his body. And the communion servers are going to come forward. Would you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you again this morning for your commitment to your church. We are astounded, astounded at your faithfulness to us when we neglect our covenant with you. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your cross. Would you help us this morning to die to ourselves a little bit more this morning? Would you help us to crucify our flesh in the power of the Holy Spirit a little bit more this morning so that we can move towards our wives and husbands in delight in your sacrifice that wipes away all of our shame and all of our guilt that creates a road to reconciliation in relationships and give us a vision to cultivate a healthy garden for the marriages in this room and give us a deep, solemn respect and honor in our hearts for the beauty and the magnificent gift that marriage is to your people and to this world. 
Would you fill us with faith as we come down here and eat? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.